We are in the third week of our new series, Church at the Movies. <laughs> I'm just kidding, we're back in Galatians, where you will find no Lego movie references, no Airbud. I'm just teasing Bryce. He served our congregation well. Thank you, brother. I was thinking about it. If Ruth is like the Hallmark Channel, Galatians is like C-SPAN. <laughs> a lot of talk about the law, the covenants, last testimony in wills. And if that doesn't get you excited for this morning, I don't know what will. Galatians chapter 3, if you have your Bibles, I will invite you to turn with me there. Now, if you've been with us as the members have been, at this point in Galatians 3, you're probably feeling a little bit of tension. And to grasp the argument that Paul's going to make in this chapter actually begins with the question that should be natural for us to ask. You really got to understand what Paul has been doing as he's moved through the chapter. So what I'm going to do is quickly recap Galatians chapter 3 to set us up for this morning. Okay, so Paul's major concern, I think we grasp at this point, unless I've just failed you as a preacher... He's writing the Galatians because he wants to remind them that we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Now justification, it's a legal declaration. Two things happen where God pardons us. He forgives our sins in Christ. And he also gives us this right standing before him. It happens apart from the works of the law, even though that, despite what the Judaizers are saying, it happens as we grab hold of Christ in faith. Now, Paul, he begins reminding them this in Galatians chapter 3 in particular. He starts in verse 1 by appealing to his own preaching. He then in verse 2 appeals to their shared experience. That it's not by works of the law that they were incorporated into God's people, but rather it was by the indwelling of the Spirit as they believed. Then Paul does something. He turns and he appeals to Scripture and more specifically to Abraham. Actually, a shared experience that they have with Abraham. You see, grasping God's covenant with Abraham, it's key not just to understanding this text, but for putting your entire Bible together. Now, the Judaizers, they loved Abraham. No doubt they were appealing to him. He was circumcised. Um, he's kind of their poster, poster boy, right? It's like the first person circumcised. Kind of cool. Well, not really. Paul takes it. He flips it on this argument on his head because he demonstrates that Abraham was justified before he was circumcised. He's actually saved before the land, before the law, and it happens as he believes and God credits him with righteousness. Paul actually says that what he's hearing there in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17, what Abraham's hearing, it's the same gospel message in seed form, that the Gentiles would be justified by faith alone apart from works in the seed who would come the one who would come to deal with our sin. More than that, Paul says something remarkable, that when we have faith, we actually become Abraham's children. And the reason this is possible is because when God made that promise to Abraham, when he made the promise to Abraham's offspring, he wasn't talking about every ethnic Jew who would ever live. Rather, he was making a promise to Abraham and to his offspring, singular, who is Jesus. Now, all those who have been engrafted into Christ, who are represented by him, they, becomes Abraham, they become Abraham's offspring, the children of Abraham by faith. Now, we saw it kind of, well, it, it prompts more questions. 
The law came after the promise, so doesn't it modify it? We saw, no, the blessing doesn't come by means of the law for two reasons. Paul showed us the promise has priority because it came first. And secondly, it's built on a different principle, which is key for us to grasp. So it's superior because it came first. It comes on a different principle. You see the law. If you were to turn to the law for justification and for life, what Paul is telling us, the law says you must do these things to live. Not just some of these things. You need to do all these things. And if you don't, you're going to be cursed, which means you're going to die. That is what we would call bad news. The good news of the gospel or the promise, it says, don't work, but rest. Right? Don't do, but believe. Don't earn, but trust. Believe that God will and has done for you what you could not do for yourself, and he has done it in Christ. So the promise comes first. It's built on a different principle, one that says we're to believe to be saved. This is how Abraham was saved. This is how we're saved. This is how anyone who is saved will be saved. It's how it's always been, how it always will be. So why in the world did God give the law to Israel? That's the question that Paul asked. That's the tension that's been building. Why not move straight from Abraham to Christ? From promise to fulfillment. Why Moses first? What is the point of the law? If we are to be justified, if Paul is right that we're justified by faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from the works of the law, he needs to be able to demonstrate the function of the law in God's economy of salvation. Like, what is God doing? Why did he give us the law? This is attention building. This is the question that Paul asks, and it's a question that we're going to ask. What is the point of the law? If you will, if you're able, I'll ask you to stand with me for the reading of God's word. Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 19. Why then was the law given? It was added for the sake of transgressions. Until the seed to whom the promise was made would come, the law was put into effect through angels by means of a mediator. Now, a mediator is not just for one person alone, but God is one. Is the law therefore contrary to God's promises? Absolutely not. For if the law had been granted with the ability to give life, then righteousness would certainly be on the basis of the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin's power, so that the promise might be given on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ to those who believe. Before this faith came, we were confined under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith was revealed. The law then was our guardian until Christ, so that we could be justified by faith. But since that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For through faith, you are all sons of God in Christ Jesus. Amen. You all can be seated. Why was the law given? Why was the law given? We'll see two things in the text this morning. The law was given to provoke sin and to prepare sinners. Why was the law given? This is kind of our big idea in question form. The law was given to provoke sin and to prepare sinners. The law was given to provoke sin and to prepare sinners. Before we jump into the question of why was the law given, I want to quickly 
define the law again to make sure we're on the same page. And then I want to give what I think is an important caveat to this section. So first, the law. When we talk about the law of God, we basically talk about it in, in two different respects. There's one, it's a more general way to talk about the law of God, and it's God's moral will for man. So there's a sense in which any command or prohibition, it is God's law. It's what he requires of us. It's unchanging because it's rooted in the character of God. We're talking about what God requires for people. Then we talk about it more specifically, often in the New Testament when you see law, it's a shorthand for the Mosaic Covenant. And we saw this last time, the Mosaic Covenant, it was this covenant law package that regulated Israel's life with God, teaching them how to worship, how to function as a nation, um, how to relate with one another as people, what to do, how to atone for sin. So you got law in a kind of general sense, God's unchanging moral will, and then in a more specific sense, it's like an administration of that law is the Mosaic Covenant. It regulated Israel's life with God. It couldn't give life, but it was intended to regulate it. So it's defining the law, and then I want to start with a caveat. We're asking the question, why was the law given? Paul is not going to exhaust all the reasons why the law was given in this text, which is, which is important for us to grasp because otherwise we might think, uh, you might be inclined to think there's no more usefulness for the law. Paul is narrowly focused on the doctrine of justification because that's what the Galatians need to hear. And so he's going to talk about the law in relationship to the doctrine of justification. That's kind of his laser focus because the Galatians are being taught we're justified by uh, faith and works by the law and Christ. So Paul's making this point about the law in redemptive history and in an individual's life as it defines, reveals, provokes and, uh, sin and as it prepares the sinner for salvation. But there is usefulness for the law outside of this. The Reformed tradition has followed Calvin in saying that there's a threefold use of the law. Okay, the first usage of the law is to reveal the righteousness of God and to demonstrate to us that we're sinners, basically. That's why we say it's like a mirror. As you're looking into the law of God, you see the character of God and you ought to see the ways in which that you don't match up to it. You could even think of it as like uh, an answer key to a test. If your life is a scantron, as it's set up against the law of God, you're seeing you got every question wrong. <laughs> You'd have done better if you guessed C all the way down. That's what Paul is doing in this section, though. He's focused on this first use of the law in terms of uh, defining sin and actually we'll see provoking it, taking it a step further. There is a third use of the law where we talk about the law of God as a guide for life. In that the law actually teaches us what human flourishing looks like. Like consider, even just take the Ten Commandments for a second. If you want to have good relationships with people, think about applying the Ten Commandments. It would mean not idolizing your friend, that friendship. Rather, helping them care about their relationship with the Lord. It would mean not lying to your friend. Rather, more positively speaking the truth in love to them. Not coveting, not desiring their belongings. Rather, rejoicing for them in the things that the Lord has given them. Not stealing, not taking from them what they have, what is rightfully theirs. But rather, protecting their possessions. Certainly not murdering them would put an end to the friendship. You see, there's a sense in which the law was given from God to Israel as a blueprint for human flourishing and that it teaches us what it looks like to be genuinely human. 
in relationship with God, with one another, the created order. The law teaches people who are alive how to live. This is why in the Old Testament you can read something like this, Psalm 19, the psalmist declares, the instruction of the Lord is perfect, renewing one's life. The testimony of the Lord is trustworthy, making the inexperienced wise. The precepts of the Lord are right, making the heart glad. Like, do God's commandments make your heart glad? The command of the Lord is radiant, making the eyes light up. You see, the psalmist loves the law of God because it makes them wise for salvation and it teaches us living people how to live the good life. But the point Paul is making in this section is that the law cannot do for you what it requires. If you look to it for life, you will find death. This is the important thing for us to grasp. The law can be useful as a guide, but you have to be alive first. Otherwise, the law only reveals and incites sin in us that leads to death. You see, in chapter 5, Paul is going to talk about the law as a guide. But before we get there, we have to make our way through chapter 3. You could say before we get to sanctification, Paul wants to make sure we understand justification. That our standing before God does not depend on our law keeping. Friends, the law of God is good and holy and just. I think it's worth saying this, that God cares about how you live. If he didn't, he would be a monster. If a parent said they don't care what their child grows up to be like, and they're not talking just in terms of profession like a politician or a plumber, they mean, I don't care if they grow up to be a heroin addict. That parent would be a monster. God cares about how we live, so much so that he would be willing to send his son to die for our sins. So we will get to this in chapters 5 and 6, especially the law as a guide. But here in chapter 3, Paul is concerned with this first usage of the law in that it reveals the righteousness of God. It shows us our sin, and he's going to take it a step further in arguing that it actually uh, provokes us to sin. Okay, so with that caveat out of the way, why was the law given? First, to provoke sin. Now, that doesn't sound right. (laughs) God has given the law to provoke sin in redemptive history. That's what Paul says, verse 19, look at it. Why then was the law given? It was added for the sake of transgressions. Added for the sake of transgressions. Now there are a few ways that people seek to understand this. Some people argue that here it's saying the law was given to deal with sin. Now that doesn't make sense to me uh, in terms of the context. Paul is arguing that we're justified apart from the works of the law. Some people say that the law here is given to restrain sin. Now, it seems to me to be the opposite of what Paul is saying. That the law actually is not granted with the ability to give life. As we'll see, in fact, it actually uh, provokes us towards sin and death. Some say the law here was given to define sin. This is getting really close, but it's not going quite far enough. What Paul is saying is that the law was given to increase sin. Paul says this in Romans chapter 5, verse 20, the law came along to multiply the trespasses. So yes, the law defines sin because it reveals the righteousness of God. It spells out what God requires of us, but it's not quite what it's getting at. The law was given to increase sin, to multiply sin, to provoke sin in us. So not only defines, it provokes, it entices. In telling the sinner not to do X, The sinner all of a sudden really wants to do X. 
We see this in Israel's history, and we see this in individual history. So I'll give two examples. We'll begin with Israel's history. Think about Israel again. They were given the law that they might reflect God's image to the world. As people who were created in His image, who were relating to one another in such a way that it should have been unmistakable to everyone else that they knew God. A kingdom of priests. They were given the law toward this end as this blueprint for human flourishing. But as we see in Israel's history, it didn't restrain sin. It actually provoked them toward it. If you consider the book of Ruth, which we were just in, Bryce was just preaching there in the back, there's a scene where Boaz is concerned that Ruth doesn't leave his field to go, um, to go harvest in other fields. It's not because Boaz is like obsessive or clingy. It's because he cares about Ruth and he's worried about what might happen to her if she finds herself in a vulnerable, posi- vulnerable position in someone else's field. The book takes place during the time of Judges. So if Ruth, again, is a Hallmark movie, Judges is like The Purge or Mad Max. Seriously. What the author is wanting us to see through the book is that people are doing what is right in their own eyes. And the book ends with a horrific, horrific story about a Levite who is traveling with his concubine through the tribe of Benjamin, and it's set up as this parallel image to something that happens in Genesis, right before Sodom and, Sodom and Gomorrah is destroyed. It's like a mirror image of what happens there, and he's doing it for a reason. This Benjamite, or this Levite is traveling through Benjamin. This group of men want to have their way with the Levite. He's able to make his way into a home for protection. They're uh, trying to break down the door. He ends up giving them his concubine, whom they all rape and kill. And what you're supposed to be seeing at the end of Judges, as it's set up as this parallel picture, you'd go look at it in Genesis, um, I'm blanking, maybe Genesis 19. There's a parallel picture of what happens there where these two angels, the men believe that they're men and they want to have their way with them. And what you're supposed to see at the end of the book of Judges is that Israel, though they had the prophets, though they had the presence of God, though they had the promises of God, though they had his precepts in his word, they became the nations. They, at this point, is no, there's no difference between Israel and Sodom and Gomorrah. Yes, there is, of course, a remnant of faith who love God's law, but on the whole, Israel has become the nations. If they are going to become God's people, they need something more than the law, which has set them apart externally. They need work done to their hearts. Someone or something to come and to deal with their sin once and for all. So Israel, though they were set apart externally, the law couldn't do for them what it required. They need heart surgery. Circumcision of the flesh, yes, of the heart, no. So far from restraining sin, it actually provoked sin in Israel's history. And it's true for us as well. It not only restrains sin, it actually entices our sinful natures. I'll encourage you in your Bibles to turn with me to Romans chapter 7. Romans is incredibly helpful, by the way, as you're studying the book of Galatians. So if you find yourself not understanding something in Galatians... First, read Galatians, seek to understand the context. The next thing you should do is turn to the book of Romans. What Paul is basically doing there is giving the same arguments in more detail. 
And so when I don't understand something again, I will begin in Galatians and then I turn to Romans. I spend more time in Romans because Paul is unpacking the same arguments in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 7, verse 7. So we'll spend just a little bit of time here because he's unpacking this idea. He says in verse 7, what should we say then? Is the law sin? You might be inclined to think this. Like if the law is multiplying sin, is it not sin itself? Like not only can it not save, it seems to be making the situation worse. Paul's answer is an emphatic no. He says absolutely not. The law doesn't make us sin. What happens when we hear the law, our sinful nature rears its ugly head when we see God's good boundaries enclosing in on it. Paul says absolutely not, but I would not have known sin if it were not for the law. We see here the defining function or feature of the law and that Paul's saying he wouldn't have known what sin was apart from God's law revealing it clearly in the Mosaic law even we would say in general revelation as God has imprinted his law on the hearts of the Gentiles Paul says elsewhere in Romans apart from God telling us we wouldn't know what sin is and then he gives a specific example he takes the 10 commandment which is interesting because it's an internal one he says for example I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said do not covet in sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me coveting of every kind. It's like the second Paul learns that he shouldn't covet, his sinful nature through the law, it seizes it, and it takes the opportunity to cause him to covet after everything. Again, the law is not producing sin in him, it's provoking him toward it. Now, you might be thinking, is that really how human nature works? Don't do X, you want to do X. I would say, have you ever spent any time around a two-year-old? There's a reason why. Two-year-old, one-and-a-half-year-old, the only thing they say is no. It's because it's the only thing they hear. <laughs> Yesterday, I'll just show this in quickly. <laughs> Our kids like singing songs and changing the words. So I was singing... Josie had a little lamb, little lamb, but I would give a pause for Josie, and this is what she was doing. I'll go, Josie had a little, no. She was just screaming no at me. Little, no. Little, no. Josie had a little, no. Whose fleece was white as, no. It's all she hears. No awe. It's not awe. You see, with a toddler, at first they do something out of curiosity right, be it touching the dial on the stove or running toward the street or grabbing someone's hair, then you sit them down, you tell them no, you try to explain to the little monster why it's wrong, <laughs> then they proceed to do it again and again and again and again and again, and at first they were curious. They didn't even know it was wrong to touch the outlet, but the second you tell them not to, even though it's for their own good, it produces in them every kind of outlet-touching desire. It is operating on this law-provoking sin principle. Friends, is that not how it is for us? As soon as God alerts us to his boundaries, boundaries that are designed for, designed for our good, to protect us, to protect our joy, not to squelch it. As soon as we hear, do not touch do not lust after, do not steal. Sin seizes the opportunity. What was meant for our good arouses something that aims actually to kill us. 
right? If I can't have it, I want it more. Then Paul explains why he keeps going. He says, for apart from the law, sin is dead. Now what Paul is not saying, he's not saying apart from the law there is no sin. He's saying apart, and this is clear in Romans chapter 5, Romans chapter 3 and 2, Romans chapter 1 as well. What Paul is saying is that apart from the law, sin is dormant. It's latent. It's like it's creeping at the door waiting for an opening. This is the key thing to grasp here. Otherwise, you might be quick to misunderstand the, the point Paul is making, and you might accuse God of something he is not liable for. The law does not promote sin. It does not even produce sin in us. Rather, it provokes our sinful natures, what is already in there. God in his law commands something good. Our natures are so corrupt that they twist the goodness of the law and they lust after what is forbidden. That is not an indictment on God's law. That is an indictment on us. Paul goes on, he says, in verse 10, the commandment that was meant for life resulted in death for me. Verse 12, so then the law is holy. This is his conclusion. It's not that it's unholy. The law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and just, and good. Therefore, did what is good become death to me? Absolutely not. But sin, in order to be recognized as sin. You see, in order not only to define sin, but to understand the power of sin. To understand its destructive nature, it had to have its way in your life. Sin, in order to be recognized as sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that through the commandment, sin might become sinful beyond measure. God, through the goodness of his law, actually uh, it entices our sinful nature, and in doing so, we realize that we need something to save us even from ourselves. Like if when God gives us something that is good, it inflames us towards what is wicked. We need God's divine intervention. Friends, we cannot possibly hope to stand before the law, to stand before God one day and to point to the law for our justification. Not only do we not do it, it incites us toward further rebellion. It would be like a serial killer pleading innocent and his entire defense is the law. Like, everyone knows he did it. You know that you did it. What's your defense? The law says do not murder. No, yeah, yeah, we get that. That's what you're on trial for. What is your defense? The law says do not murder. Friends, on the day of judgment, the law will not be your friend. You will need an advocate. The law of God, it clearly defines for us what God requires. In plain language, it tells us what is right and wrong, but it can't help us do what it asks of. In fact, it prompts us to do the opposite. And in doing so, it reveals the depths of our depravity. And that is an act of mercy from God. If we were to take an honest look into the mirror of God's law, it would show us what we really are. Not only sinful, but utterly powerless to save ourselves. And that is an act of God's grace toward us. Paul says in Romans chapter 11, verse 32, For God has imprisoned all in disobedience so that he might have mercy on all. How does God have mercy on us as we'll soon see? He does so by sending his son that we might be justified. 
he lived the life that we should have lived under the law. He was punished for the life that we did live under the law. He rose from the dead in victory as a sign of his justification that he was indeed innocent. And now he offers us life freely, simply by believing upon him. And he goes further yet and adopts us, we'll see. Not just innocent, but we become his sons and daughters. And if you're visiting us this morning and you are not a Christian, we would encourage you to talk to any of our members after service. Ask them how they came to understand their own powerlessness under the law and under their own sin and how they came to grasp a hold of Jesus for salvation. Back to, in your Bibles, Galatians chapter 3. So first we see that the law by itself, apart from life and faith, it does not have the ability to restrain sin. In fact, it actually provokes us. It demonstrates our powerlessness to save ourselves. And in this sense, it prepares us for a savior. We could say that the law shows us we need a savior and the gospel gives it to us. But before we move to the second point about how it prepares us, I just want us to see a couple other things in this first half of the text. Part of, again, what Paul is doing, he's concerned to demonstrate to answer this question, why the law? He also wants to show us why the law is inferior to the promise. And he's going to add two more things here. If you look back at verse 19, the first reason is that the law is temporary. This is also one of the reasons why we don't go back to it. It had a specific function in history, and that has come to a close. He says, verse 19, the law was given, until the seed to whom the promise was made would come. Paul's going to make that point throughout this section repeatedly that the law was put into effect for a short period of time. It was temporary until the seed, the one that God made the promise to, came that we might be blessed in him. Like, why would you want to go back? It is an unthinkable regression in redemptive history. It would be like starting to wear diapers again as a 30-year-old. It would be like, to use Paul's illustration, going back to prison once you've been set free. So it's temporary. It was good for a time for a particular purpose. There's no need for us to go back to the Mosaic law now that its fulfillment has come. And the second thing that Paul's going to say is that the law is mediated. So the promise comes directly from God to us. Well, the law of Moses was mediated. If you're reading this this week, you're probably thinking, why does Paul kind of insert what seems to be random? He says, looking in at verse 19, the law was put in effect through angels by means of a mediator. Now, a mediator is not just for one person alone, but God is one. Here, Paul is arguing that the promise is better because it's unmediated. He's saying that the law of Moses actually came from God through angels to Moses to Israel. Conversely, the promise comes directly from God himself as he made the promise to Abraham and to his son, the offspring. By being in the offspring, it's as though God has made the promise to you directly. Paul seems to be, if you want some references here, drawing off of Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 2, about um, angels being there when the law was given. Stephen also makes the same point in Acts chapter 7, that the law was put in effect through angels. But you see, the reason why mediation was necessary was because of Israel's sin problem. Which gets back to the first point that we're seeing here about the law's inability to save. In fact, in Exodus chapter 20, after Israel received the law, they tell Moses, do not let God talk to us, lest we will die. 
They say, you, mediator, talk to us instead on God's behalf. Israel needed a mediator because they couldn't relate to God directly. So they have the law. The problem is that the law doesn't fix their problem. It only further entices them to sin. If we are to be saved, we need to be saved by God and God alone, the God who is one. This is what the text is getting at, that in the promise there is no mediation. God himself stoops low to speak to Abraham, to make a promise to him that he himself will stoop low again in his son to save him and his people. Think about it, friends. What is better? The law is temporary and mediated. The promise is unending and it comes directly from God. The law comes through angels to Moses to an ethnic people you don't even belong to. The promise comes directly from God. It's promised in the blood of his son. One where you believe in the seed who suffered in your stead and you are saved. You are made his sons and his daughters. I don't know about you, but I want the promise. The law is temporary. It's mediated. It's inferior in this sense. We get that. It didn't restrain. It actually provoked us towards sin. There's kind of another natural question that then is prompted. It's really the first question restated. Is the law then actually working against God's will or his plan? Like, is it actually hampering his plan? We see, no, that it actually prepares us for the promise. We come to our second point. The law prepares the sinner. The law prepares the sinner for salvation. Beginning in verse 21. Is the law therefore contrary to God's promises? I think you expect at this point for Paul to say yes. It's contrary to the promises of God. Paul emphatically says absolutely not. You see, the law is not contrary to God's promises. There wasn't a wrong turn in the road of redemptive history. It's not even like an awkward speed bump. Rather, it complements what God is doing to save his people by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. He keeps going there in verse 21. Paul says, For if the law had been granted with the ability to give life, then righteousness would certainly be on the basis of the law. What Paul wants us to see here is that the law and the gospel have different functions, different purposes. If they both were intended to give life, then they would be contrary. It would have been as though God were putting forth two plans of salvation, like a really hard one and an easy one. But they're not competing programs of salvation. This is, of course, as we've seen, the law requires perfect obedience. If you're looking to the law for justification, you will only find death, not life. Not blessing, but curse. But the law and the gospel, they work together because in the law you are alerted to your need for a savior. Savior. In this sense, it's preparing you. It's showing you your own powerlessness to sin that you might be ready, your heart might be ripened for a savior, which is Christ, who comes to us in the promise. So we see that they actually, in a sense, work together. The law comes first. This is key to understand, though. What I don't mean is that you need to obey the law first in order to be ready for Christ. I'd say, especially to any non-Christian who's here, you don't have to clean up your life to come to Jesus. That would be quite the opposite point of what I'm making this morning. What you do need to understand through the law is that you cannot obey your way to life. In fact, you have disobeyed your way to death. The law reveals to us that we can bring nothing. And in the gospel, Jesus says, I supply everything. 
the law says you are condemned. In the gospel, God offers you forgiveness. The law reveals to you the gap between your righteousness and God's. And in the gospel, God fills it with the righteousness of Jesus. The law offers us the painful news that you are sick and dying, that you might run to the remedy, which is Christ. This is how the law prepares us for Christ. It alerts us to the fact that we are in danger, that we are helpless, that we are in need for a savior to save us from sin, to save us from our own selves even. So the law actually complements the gospel. It's not contrary to it. it is, it's like the road you have to drive down to to get to the home that is the gospel. This is true in redemptive history. It's true in our own lives as well. The law prepares us. And Paul's gonna put forth in the rest of our text two illustrations to show us this. The law prepares for the gospel because the law is like a prison and the law is like a pedagogue. The law is like a prison and the law is like a pedagogue. I will define, I can even spell pedagogue for you later. But first, the law is like a prison. I'm a sucker for alliteration. Uh, first, the law is like a prison. We see this in verse 22. Look at the text. It says, but the scripture that is the law imprisoned everything under sin's power. You see, rather than having the ability to give life, to grant life, to justify, the law actually imprisoned us under sin's power. So in turning to law, not only are you under the law, you're actually under the power of sin. That's because where it commands, it provokes. If you intend to submit to the law for justification, you will find yourself under a heavy yoke that you cannot bear. Now, why did God do this? Imprison everything under under sin, under the law, or through the law, verse 22, so that the promise might be given on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ to those who believe. You see, as the law imprisons us under the power of sin, it's intended to drive us to faith in Jesus. That as we find ourselves in this prison, we ought to be longing for freedom. The law imprisons under sin's power that we would look elsewhere not to law, not to ourselves, but to Christ. That is because the law cannot give us what we need, the freedom that we need. Paul keeps going, verse 23, he says, now before this faith came, and it's kind of an important disclaimer here, Paul's not saying that faith didn't exist before Christ came. Okay, 430 years earlier, Abraham, the father of faith, believed. There was always a faithful remnant in Israel who grabbed a hold of God through faith as they were trusting God that he indeed would deal with their sins through uh, his promises and through the Mosaic Covenant as well. Paul's not saying that faith didn't exist, but he's pitting these principles of work and faith against one another. So before faith is kind of this old dispensation under the law where most of Israel didn't realize that actually they were justified by faith alone apart from works. But now that the seed has come, we have clarity the object of some, we have clarity of the one we're believing in and of the means of salvation. So Paul says, before this faith came, we were confined under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith was revealed. Again, we see the temporary nature of the law. We were imprisoned until the coming faith. It's like you are in uh, prison until your sentence is up. There is no escaping 
okay? You're not clever enough. You're not going to be moral enough. You're under the jurisdiction of this prison unless someone can free you. And now Paul is saying that faith has come. We are no longer in prison. Sin ought to not have the same power over us now that we are no longer under the law, but rather in Christ. But friends, I think what Paul wants us to see is why would we go back to the law? That is what you do when you, every time you sin against God and you think you'll make it up to him through your obedience or self-flagellation. It's like you're walking back into an unlocked prison cell. I think Paul is asking us why. The time of faith has been revealed. The promised seed has come. He has dealt with our sin once and for all and we have been set free. So Paul tells us first that the law is like a prison In that sense, it's preparing us as it creates in us this desire for freedom. As it shows us there's no escaping on our own. We need someone else to do it. And the second thing, Paul puts forth this illustration. He says in verse 24, the law then was our pedagogue is the word uh, in Greek. There's an English word pedagogue as well. CSB translated guardian. Your translation might say custodian. Really what we're talking about is a nanny like a full-time babysitter. Paul is saying that the law was like a nanny. More specifically, a pedagogue. Wealthy Greek families, they would often have um, a slave in the house who was called a pedagogue. And it was their responsibility to raise the children. Okay? Parents are busy doing, you know, who knows what in Greece. But these pedagogues, they were responsible for raising the children. Now, they weren't... uh, teachers or instructors the children would still go to class their function don't miss this was to teach the children morals and to punish them when they disobeyed okay so you have this child of the house will one day be an heir we'll see this more fully next time for a time there is this slave over them teaching the morals and punishing them when they disobey in ancient portraits of pedagogues they're often seen holding a rod Okay, that kind of gives you the image. Like, if you're looking for a nanny on LinkedIn, it's like everyone's got rods in their pictures, belts, paddles. That's how you know which one's going to be the best. I don't know. I just called that person dad growing up. All the fathers say amen. But don't miss this connection to the law. They taught the children morals and they disciplined them when they went to stray. Do this and live. Don't and you'll be disciplined. But it only lasted for a time. At some point, the child grows up and your nanny is too old to be hitting you with a stick. At some point, you come of age, you become the man of the house, you no longer need this nanny. You become a man or a woman. Paul is saying we were under the guardian temporarily and for a purpose. He goes on, he says we were under this pedagogue, this guardian, until Christ. Why? So that we could be justified by faith. Friends, we were under the guardian, which is the law, so that we could be justified by faith. Notice the guardian leads to the justifier. As a child under the tutor teaching us a law that we cannot keep, it should be driving us to Jesus. Like, I've had enough of the rod. I want the righteousness of Christ. It complements, it serves for a specific period of time that we might be driven to faith in Jesus, that we might be justified apart from our law-keeping as we trust in him and him alone. 
Verse 25, Paul says, but since that faith has come, again, this new time period has come, it has dawned as the sun has come, he says we are no longer under a guardian. So the guardians, they have this temporary function. They're there until the child becomes an adult. But what Paul is not saying is that the Mosaic law turned us into adults. Like it did its job in that we are now moral people through the law. No, he's saying that there's no need for a guardian anymore because the son of the house has come home. Look, verse 26, for through faith you are all sons of God in Christ Jesus. When we are united to Jesus in faith, we become God's children. Isn't that incredible? It's not that the law did its job and that it made us perfectly righteous children of God. It couldn't. Rather, the Son of God comes home and he clothes us in him. And when God looks at us, he doesn't see these disobedient little toddlers. He sees the perfect righteousness of his Son as we've been clothed in him, as we've been united to him. It is staggering. We'll see this more next time. But what is most defining, what is most dear to Jesus, that he is the Son of God, he gives to us his sonship. What is his by virtue of his being, he gives to us by adoption. God no longer, again, sees children that need to be disciplined who are under a guardian. Rather, he sees his own children clothed in his son. Christ has done for us what the law could not. He gives us life. He forgives us sins. He secures our righteous verdict. And going further still, in Christ we are adopted. It wasn't enough that we would only be forgiven. We have become the children of God. Not just that we would be the children of Abraham. Paul takes it one step further and says that we have become the children of God in the Son. We are released from the prison of the law and the power of sin as Christ himself was punished as a criminal, as a prisoner on our behalf. We are released from the guardian in its pledge of punishment as the son himself comes home. He takes the punishment upon himself. He clothes us in himself that we might become his heirs. He does for us what the law could never do. And it comes by faith and faith alone in Jesus. We see the law prepares us for Christ, not because we submit to its works, but because we realize we cannot. Rather than moving from the law to Christ with works in our hands, we go empty-handed that we might cling to Jesus and him alone. The law does not save. It was never intended to do so, and it cannot. It simply shows us that we need saving, and it points us to the Savior who can. The song that we sing next, Rock of Ages, it perfectly, I think, captures this. That it's not by our law-keeping that we're saved, but through the blood of the Son, the second and third verse, not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to thy fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. God and God alone must save, and he has in Christ. Let's pray now. Father, we are in awe of your loving kindness toward us. 
I pray that we all would be stirred to worship as we think about the fact that you have saved us apart from our own works. That though we indeed deserve to be condemned under your law, that you have put it upon yourself to save us. That you did so by sending your son. That he lived perfectly under the law on our behalf, that he died under the law for our sins, that he rose from the dead. And that, Father, as we will see, the further we get into Galatians, the beautiful reality that not only are we justified, but we are adopted. We have become your children. And it comes as we go to you with empty hands that we might cling to your son. I pray that we would do so all the more. It is in his name and by your spirit we pray. Amen.